0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A's. I don't think there's any special announcements or anything, so let's just jump right in and see what we got. First up, over on Patreon, Retrograde recently picked up Crix's RGB Blaster. That's the device that plugs into a Famicom, and you put your game on top of it, so it's kind of game genie looking. However, you get RGB video out of it via a Genesis 2 connector, and it's a digital RGB signal, so it's crystal clear, and it passes the audio through. And Retrograde had a couple of problems with it. It mostly worked fine, but Marble Madness and another game, Rolling Thunder, didn't work. So I have heard that there are a handful of games that just aren't compatible with it, and I'm honestly not sure why. It probably has to do with the fact that a lot of the game manufacturers would just make sure it worked on original hardware without really checking all of the specs and stuff like that so it's I am probably out of my out of my depth here so I'm just gonna say it's known that a few games don't work with it but most should and most should work perfectly also they mentioned that uh, everything else in their collection they thrown out it works fine so it sounds like that's what you're running into you're running into one of the very few games that just won't work with it so you would have to just play it via composite on your AV Famicom. Also, you mentioned trying the new firmware, and uh, respectfully, you did get one thing wrong. Uh, You said you heard in the weekly podcast that the new firmware is only for the older version of the blaster. Not quite. So the new firmware really should be only for people who are having issues. If your RGB blaster is working fine, I would kind of just leave well enough alone. But if you have any issues at all with the video output, or I guess retrograde, you could give this a try as well, then I would do the latest one. Now, you mentioned using HD RetroVision cables, so I would definitely update it, because I had some issues with the launch firmware of mine, but once I loaded up the latest firmware, everything worked perfect with the HD RetroVision cables depending on when you received it. You said you were able to grab one a week or two ago. You might actually already have the latest firmware on there, which is probably why it's working perfectly with HD Retrovisions and the rest of your games. But it won't hurt to try, and it's super, super easy. Just plug it into a PC, run the batch file, and that should be it. So yeah, I would would give that a try and see. But unfortunately, it just seems like you're running into a couple of the games that are not compatible with it. But overall, I still really love the solution because it's a no-cut, no mod solution. It is full plug and play. So yeah, I mean, it would have been nice for you not to have to use composite video out from your AV Famicom to play those games, but we'll see. The only other thing that you could try just for fun, if you're a nerd and you want to experiment with stuff like I do, is try playing Rolling Thunder and Marble Madness with the RGB blaster and the AV Famicom's composite output connected. Uh, You don't even really need to connect the output of the RGB blaster, just have it there and see if it works. I'm curious to see, is it something with the RGB blaster that blocks the signals from going to the motherboard, or does it still work perfectly through composite, but just not through the RGB blaster? And if you don't have time to test it, that's fine. It's just me being a curious nerd, just wanting to know for no particular reason. A couple of follow-up Mr. Questions from Tony Escobar. First, last week, we talked about having an external power switch for those Mr. Kits. And it looks like the Mr. Add-ons from Pork, those digital I.O. boards have a little switch on them that is an on-off switch. So that is actually built into Porks. So uh, my apologies, but um, either solution would have been fine. If you somehow preferred the external solution, that should be cool. But glad to know that it's in there, and that's certainly a helpful option. And also, when discussing resolutions... Um, Last week, we figured out that it was probably Tony's TV that just wasn't compatible with the signal. And the original resolutions that were switched around to see if it would work are 1536p and 1080p. So that's kind of interesting to see that um we never dropped down below that. So that's just another trick. If you're diagnosing some kind of mister related issue, try going down to 480p and see what happens or for whatever reason you can't 720 uh and kind of go through all the other steps that we went through as well. But glad to hear that everything's already worked itself out. Uh so glad to hear uh you know uh, we we know why it was flickering cuz knowing why, you know what was that? Knowing is half the battle. Was that it? Did I get that right? It's been 30 years since I've heard that on TV, but uh, I mean, it is unfortunately as silly as that is, it's very true. So I'm glad we know for the future for troubleshooting this stuff. Brandon Arnold wanted to know if I knew of any standalone analog to analog scalers or a a minimal setup for converting 240p to 480p. They had recently used a RetroTink 5X and then a cheap HDMI to VGA converter in order to run 240p signals into VGA monitors. Uh, they said some may say this setup defeats the purpose of having a CRT because the scan lines don't look right, but they like the alternative. So I did a full video covering this a couple years ago. I will link to that in the description. Uh, It is an amazing idea, and this is the perfect time to use just basic horizontal scan lines. It'll make the image darker, so you'll just have to turn up the brightness on your PC VGA monitor, CRT VGA monitor, but it'll look almost exactly like an RGB monitor. I mean, you're going to get a really high quality image. Not only did I do that video on it, I also showed in a live stream. I compared it to, I compared a VGA monitor to a 20L5 PVM. I mean, I did a whole bunch of tests on this and your setup is absolutely awesome for that. But you're correct. You don't need a Tink 5X for that. You just need to line double. So the GBS control would probably be your best bet because analog in, analog out. Uh, You could buy them pre-built or you could make your own very cheap. You could also use an OSSC with a DAC. So just open source scan converter sent to 2X mode, set to 2X mode, 640 by 480. And that would work fine. Just add scan lines on that. Or you could use any of the RetroTink 2X devices, but same thing, HDMI out to an HDMI to VGA converter. The one that I use, the Ranky one, so far has been the most consistent for me, and that's like 10 bucks. So uh, if you're you know, using a GBS control, you don't even need that. And if you're using the other solutions, maybe you have an OSSC laying around, pick up that DAC and use that. But that's an awesome solution, and I will leave links to everything for you. Next up, Tim the Gamer23 had a non-trolly question about the whole analog jailbreak firmware thing. I want to emphasize that Tim's question is not trolling because there are so many people that have already come at me just for saying don't worry about it. There probably isn't an issue. And guess what? There isn't an issue. <laughs> So there was a couple of things that get taken out of context, mixed up, confused, basically what happens all day now on social media. And there were some slight hardware changes. And this is a little bit of speculation, but it's all rooted in fact. So the the end result is you don't have to worry. But there weren't major hardware changes, but it would require a different firmware from the factory. So when there was that whole, oh, you can't downgrade the firmware, you can't take one of the newer Mega SG or Mega are super NTs and that it were just released and use a firmware from last year because that firmware doesn't have the code to talk to this slightly ch- different change in hardware so that's the whole... It's not that these consoles can't be downgraded. They absolutely can. You just have to have the minimum hardware requirement for the firmware. So if you have like a launch edition Super NT, you should be able to put whatever firmware on there exists. But from the newer ones, you would basically be able to use any firmware from today on. You could go up or back. So nobody's locking their consoles. Nobody's breaking them. No one's removing functionality. Uh, and then I believe the whole jailbreak thing. And when I say jailbreak specifically, I'm talking about running Super Nintendo ROMs on the Super NT and Genesis ROMs on the Mega SG. Not a full jailbreak like the NT Mini had, just being able to load that console's ROMs on it that should be available now. I don't understand what that snafu is all about, but the bottom line is you should be able to download that. Totally not from analog, unofficial, but completely safe to use jailbreak firmware on that. So everything should be fine. Please, anybody who would like, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're going to come in here trolling because I'm defending analog, you're getting banned. If you're going to come in because you think I'm going after analog, you're getting banned. I just, I don't have time for you trolls. Tim, you are not a troll. Thank you very much for asking a polite question. Uh, but no, everything's, everything should be totally cool. Worst, worst case scenario is you, uh, you got a super NT or mega SG from the latest batch and you just had to wait a couple of days to get that newer jailbreak firmware, but everything should be totally fine and there should not be any worries, but please Correct me if I'm wrong, and I will also repeat this on the weekly podcast with any new information that I get. JP Brunau Bruneo, Bruneo, sorry my friend, I never mean to pronounce people's names wrong, I'm just terrible at it, but anyway, they said they have their TurboGrafx-16 working fine on their JVC D-Series CRT TV using an engine block AV purchased from Stone Age Gamer with an S-Video connection. Today, they messed up replugging the engine block and bent two of the pins on the back of the TurboGrafx-16 on the rear expansion port. Pin A20 is pushed in, which is the data video bus 0. They also see that pin A19 is slightly bent. Pin 19 is the video data bus 1. So now they can't get any proper video signal. All they get is either a white screen or a green screen or nothing at all, and the TG-16 doesn't stay on no matter what connection they use, engine block using S-Video or that cheap garbage Hypercan AV adapter using a composite cable, which JP wanted to clarify. They thought that was their best option when they didn't know about the engine block or EDFX. We totally get it, but thank you for clarifying. They tried unbending the pins, but with no success so far. What are their options? Is it possible to get a a replacement rear expansion port with installation? So, I think you have to hope for the best, plan for the worst in this scenario. It could be that when the pins pushed in and touched together, that they shorted some stuff out in the console, which could be why when you tried to straighten the pins, you didn't get any signal. So I would suggest um, I would suggest talking to a pro modder that has experience bringing these things back to life. And you know, if you want to do the mod work yourself, I'll get to that in a second. But I do just want to. I just want to very politely remind everybody that if you have people that do this stuff all day long, every day, even if you're good at modding your console, it's still the first time you've done anything like this. And I just, I always repeat this, not because I'm trying to push for you to pay for modders. I don't get an affiliate code for modders or anything. I just know how many times I said, oh, I've done stuff like that a million times. I could do it. And then after hours of messing it up, I end up having to hire Jose to not only do the original work, but also fix whatever I broke along the way, costing me more money making his job a lot harder. So if I had just gone to him in the first place, it was a problem he dealt with a million times. So not an issue. So I just wanted to very politely remind everybody of that because I just don't want to see you all throw your money and time away like I often accidentally did. But if you did want to take a look at this, um, you might be able to take the whole thing apart and really take a look on the inside to see when the pin pushed in. Is it still on the inside of the console? Is it touching anything else on the inside? Were any traces on the board messed up while doing that? Is there any burn marks? Is there any signs that something got messed up? You basically want to trace everything around that pin to see what happened. And you could end up pushing it back through, straightening it and be done, which means you could end up paying a pro mod or good money to straighten a pin out, which sucks and is not fair. But, you know, it is what it is. However, it could be something where you might need a full replacement of the rear port. But if that was the case, you might actually want to look into an internal mod at that point, because replacing the whole connector might take longer than doing an internal mod. And Zaxor has the mod that gets you full RGB, S-video, and uh, also has the stereo audio pass-through. I I know that kind of defeats the purpose of owning an engine block, but you could always sell one of those. And just uh, respectfully make sure when you sell it to that it is engine block from stone age gamer made by renee and it's not the clone that's being sold on ebay for two dollars that stinks so uh people will happily pay for the good correct products you just gotta make sure to let them know that that is what it is but Yeah, I think this is one of those things where if you feel like messing with it, taking it all apart down to the board, and remember the TG-16, you have to desolder the RF shield, but you have to solder it back on, or that won't boot either, because that's the ground plane for it. So disassemble the entire thing, desolder the RF shield, trace all around that pin, see if you could push it back through, see if it's shorted. That's definitely something you could handle. Anybody with a soldering iron and some patience could handle that. But then... Are the traces burnt? Is there something permanently shorted? Is there a chip that needs to be replaced? Probably not, but that's when you might want to walk down the road of just sending it right to a pro modder. So hopefully, I could point you in the right direction. Uh, I'm sorry that I don't have a very easy fix for this, but TG16s are awesome. They're getting you know rarer, especially if you've already had one recapped. You know you're going to want to be very patient and just treat this you know, treat this like it's very fragile just in case. And, you know, on the flip side, if you haven't gotten a cap replacement done to it, maybe this is just an all-in-one tune-up. Maybe you send it to somebody like Zaxor who could disassemble the whole thing, do the full recap, and either fix the pin or put an internal mod in there for you. But totally up to you. Next up, Alucard T-Capulet wants to know if I know of any modern disk rewritable drives that write at slowest speeds. For burning games, we're always told to write at the slowest speeds, and it seems like all the modern drives write at 24x or 48x, no slower. Even their old 2009 laptop can only write at 10x. And while Saturn and Dreamcast games seem to be working fine, it would still be nice to own a newer drive rather than worry about your old drive dying. You know, what if 10x on that drive isn't the best combination? And I do know of a drive that I have two of that is great. It's I've never had issues with it and I thought maybe I just got lucky. I bought it for the purpose of ripping UHD and also burning media, but I, apparently it also does a great job burning CDs and i guess this is sort of known throughout some of my fellow nerds you might have to load a, a special or a, a specific firmware on it but i definitely remember before i did that cuz when i got it i think one of them had the original firmware and one of them didn't so i, I had to reload that for the purpose of UHD not really sure how that uh, how that interacts with CD burning but i do know that it's kind of known that this drive brand is, is going to be good for a modern way to burn CDs. Burn CDs, DVDs, and Blu-rays. Um, I will link to the one that I bought that uh, I'll make sure it's in stock. I'll see if there's any cheaper ones out there, like open, or not open box, like brown box style, like just OEM. And I'll also try to look for an external, but I could only vouch for the internals. Now, it should be the same, or, or at worst, you should have to take it out, flash firmware and put it back in. But if you're looking for an external USB drive, it would be pretty cool. And uh, if you're willing to take the risk, hopefully I could find an Amazon link. If you're able to try the external and confirm that the drive on the inside is actually the exact same one, that would be pretty awesome too. And if not, you could always return it. I hate doing that. I never abuse that, even on big stores like Amazon and Best Buy, but it's nice that that's an option. That way you don't have to throw out 150 bucks or whatever it is. So I'll definitely leave a link to the one, the brand new one that I've been using that a bunch of other people have confirmed that is good. The only thing that I will add to that, though, I, now this is all speculation based on, you know, all my speculations based on a million years of nerdiness and friends that are much smarter than me, but this is not fact what I'm about to say. I think that whole burn at the slowest speeds was more about those drives that you were using in the late 90s and early 2000s burned better at 1x speed for that time period and that hardware-software combo. I think nowadays, a more modern burner that could handle a lot of stuff, I do think you should still set it to its slowest speed. So if you use image burn, set it to 1x, and it'll automatically just go to the next slowest speed that the drive could handle. I think that is still recommended, but I think now it's more about setting it to the drive's slowest speed, not so much setting it to 1x. I think that the media that you use is much more important these days. I mean, it always was, but I think these days you have to worry about getting... Getting a decent burner running it on its slowest setting which is still pretty fast and don't get garbage media um, there's a lot of stuff that uh that is still branded as Taiyo Yuden, but i don't know if it actually <laughs> excuse me if it actually is so just pick up media you know if you already are using media that's the best bet so like if you know that the discs you've been burning work great on your older 2009 laptop burner save one or two, try it on this new one, and if everything's good to go, now you've confirmed that the drive is good, and then you could just try picking up decent media wherever you can. I'm kind of um, apprehensive to leave a link to that because the last time I did, it turns out that it was advertised as Tai but it wasn't. But they still worked fine. So, But I, I just... I, I never want to mislead people. I'm fine making mistakes, but I, I just don't ever want to mislead anybody. So I'll leave a link to those drive burners and hopefully that'll be what you need. And if anybody has any info on this, if I got anything majorly wrong, please jump in and, uh, and let me know. I, I never mind being wrong. I just I, I really want to get the correct info out there. But I'm pretty sure buying one of those drives, testing it with the media that you already know works. I think that's your best bet for longevity to make sure that you have a drive that lasts for a while. Now over on Floatplane, Kirko said they've just been gifted a 3D printer and it's located about 1.5 meters from their VGA CRT monitor. They can't see any distortion or rainbows in the monitor, but were curious what my thoughts on the matter would be. They can't see anything that states it has magnets located in it, but I thought I would ask. So, you know, that's something that it's a very good question, but I would always do the same test that I recommended for speakers and subwoofers clear everything out from around your monitor, set an all-white screen, 240p test suite, whatever you got, and then set a camera in manual mode. It could be your cell phone. It doesn't have to be anything fancy, but set it up on your tripod and set it to manual mode and lock it and take a picture. Video is better if possible. uh, And then or a picture and video, to be honest, snap a picture, hit record on the video in locked manual mode, and then bring whatever device that you were th- worried about, or at least not worried, but curious about, sit it the proper distance. Actually, I would put it right next to the CRT monitor and then move it to the distance that you wanted. So you said 1.5 meters. I would walk up to the the monitor with it and then move it back to where its location is, and then stop the video, snap one more still picture, and then compare those. Compare the first and last pictures, and then watch the video and see. And if you're watching the video, and all you see is the shadow from you walking close, but no discoloration, then there was never any magnets in there or any kind of magnetic field interference. However, if you do see the colors change when you walk around, that is when the first and last picture become really imperative, because... The first subwoofer test I did, when I put it down, as I was putting it down, the colors went crazy on the CRTs next to it, but when it was on the ground, it seemed like there was a white screen, but when I compared the first and last pictures, the lower corner was slightly darker, so that even though it was very minimal, it was still affecting the magnetic field, which could do damage over long periods of time, so... That is where the, the still pictures really, really come in handy. Uh so yeah, that, that's basically my advice. But I mean, you know, there's other things, of course, that could interfere. I mean thing electronic devices could always interfere with each other. I personally do not obsess about it. Obviously, you saw the wall of junk behind me. Uh, I just try to take the steps to make sure I don't do anything. Stupid, like put an unshielded speaker on top of a you know of a consumer CRT and walk away and come back two months later and the CRT's ruined. But I do you know I, I make sure to just take the basic steps. Uh, next, they've also started, started following some creators such as Greg and Todd, and they're so glad they have some of their prints available. They know it leads to their creations being stolen and sold, so they're really thankful that they and other creators do this. Yeah, it sucks, um, and I go through this too, so I I know partially what they're feeling. But, you know, it's when people quote my work and like, oh, yeah, well, check out this new 3D printer thingy you can download. I saw this, you know, Bob from Retro RGB showed it to me. You know, check it out. Here's a link in the description. I love that. I don't care if whoever that is now makes, you know, has a million hits on the video and makes a couple of grand off of it. That That's cool. That's the way it is. Maybe their channel's flashier. Maybe they're prettier than I am. That's totally fine. I don't have any problem with that because they didn't pretend like they were the ones that did the work. And I... It's the people who read the articles that I write, especially the ones that drive me the craziest are the ones that take, you know, 80 hours, 100 hours worth of research and testing to get to this, and they read it word for word as if they were the one that did the research. One person in in particular is notorious for this, and then when he was called out on Twitter for it, he blocked me and everybody I'm friends with because he knew he was caught, and he continues to do it, and that is enraging. And my guess, I don't want to speak for any of these creators, but if my guess is if people took these open source designs that were, were posted and said, hey, I got this, you know, this was posted on Thingiverse, Greg from Laser Bear, Todd from Retrofrog, whatever else, you know, support them here if you want it, but you could buy it from me too. I especially if they're not located very close to them. If they were in the same town, that's kind of it's still fair, but a dick move. But if like somebody in Europe did that for a U.S. seller, I think everybody kind of wins because you promote each other. You know, you let each other know about you know you let everybody know about each other's designs. You didn't act like it was yours. I think that's good. You know, I don't want. Once again, I'm not speaking for anybody else. This is just my own dumb opinion. What really enrages me, though, is when, you know, like the very famous one person who runs Bitfunks steals those designs, pretend it's theirs, sells them. And then you have Kaiko up on Twitter yesterday, bad mouthing people and, you know, getting laughing in people's face about stealing their designs. Yeah, You have the, you know, and that's. Kaiko, who hires bitfunks to, to do all this with them I, they're definitely affiliated I haven't exactly figured out how I, I don't want to speak out of tune because one of these days they're gonna try to sue me for standing up to them and they can't so far because every word I've said has been fact so good luck wasting your money trying to sue me for for just saying what's very clearly all over the internet and out there but it's it's really gross and uh, it's it just it's even grosser when I get comments all the time like on my retrotink 2x videos like I guess this City, it's never heard of BitFunks. You unbelievable moron. Not only not only are you a douchebag to come in my comments and say that, but that's the stolen one. To the point where I actually think it's a couple of drama channels working, getting paid by Kaiko. actually. One did uh to to promote this. So I guess I gotta get off my soapbox and stop ranting about this, or you're all gonna stop listening to me because you're Probably tired of hearing me talk about it, but as you could tell, it's something that really pisses me off a lot, and I want—I would love to see it end, and I would love to see somebody stop the one major cloner in all of retro, and kind of just have it trickle down from there. But anyway, Kirko, I uh, sorry to rant on your uh, on your question, but hopefully I gave you at least a good answer to the first part. Next up, Mike was curious what I think is the best option for a modded GameCube that also has a working disc drive. They think the simple answer is a Pico boot, but they thought they read somewhere that the Pico boot could be slower for game loading and were curious if any of the other options work at full speed for loading. They do already have a GC loader in their cube with a broken disk drive, but recently got another analog-only model with a working drive and thought it would be cool to boot games both from their digital library and from their disks. So um, I think you absolutely nailed it. If it was a dead drive, I would absolutely say GC loader hands down. If you have a working drive, why not keep it? I mean, there's plenty of reasons why you would still want a GC loader, but I I am on your page of the drives. <coughs> the drive's working. Why not have that functionality? And Pico boot is or any kind of mod chip or way to boot into Swiss is where you would have to start. <coughs> so you know you could try to hunt down an action replay disc, but Pico boots easy. The other mod chip that just came out, uh, Tito has covered all of this stuff. By the way, I'll leave links, but pick one of the two mod chips, see which one you think is best for you. I did the Pico boot. I did a a very slow installation because I wanted to make it look nice. I wanted to make sure it lasted the journey because I was sending it to a friend. Um, So it was time consuming because I went very slow, but it wasn't a hard mod to do. So having any way to boot to Swiss, Pico boot or the other mod chips probably recommended, but that is a must. And then from there, the only question I have at that point is, do you already have a RetroNAS working? If you do, you might want to look into getting the GameCube's network port and just running it from that because that way you could just boot all of your games over the network, which is pretty cool. If not, you should look into that M2 loader solution because that's going to be, uh, I believe it's a SATA drives, but uh, but it's still much faster than Flash Media, and that should be able to handle pretty much everything you throw at it. That said, if you're out of budget, start with an SD card and go from there and maybe the games that you're looking to play will play fine Uh, but you know those are the other options if you were looking for performance as well as keeping your original drive I haven't personally tried the network one but I I think uh, I know a bunch of people who have and they all say that it's awesome so if you already have a retro NAS I would probably look into that but if not look into the M2 one and I'll leave links to all of the things that I'm talking about. They're pretty much all on Tito's channel. So I'll just leave a link to that. And uh, that way you could kind of just watch those videos and see what you think is the best for your setup. Well, that's it for this week. If you want to participate in these, ask anything you would like wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, I just really like scrolling through in real time as if we were hanging out chatting somewhere like you saw today. So any question at all, fire away. And especially, and of course, thanks to everybody who supports in absolutely any way. Even if you don't participate in these, I still really appreciate it. Thank you all so much. And I will see you next week.